preach, we could sing that again. I'm going to preach, (laughs) but I almost feel like we don't need to. Um, So today was another fun day at IRBC. I was watching my kids during the the morning chapel and when announcements were being made, and Willie mentioned that parachute was taking place below Jensen at 1 o'clock. My daughter's eyes got as big as dinner plates. She was so excited. She turns and looks, are you serious? A parachute? I thought that was kind of odd, you know, it was like, she doesn't even know what it is, but she's excited about it. Now, you've got to keep in mind, my daughter's only reference to parachutes is, you know, people that jump out of planes. So, uh, you know, the day goes on, they go to their classes, we get lunch finished, and we're sitting in our room, and we're ready to head down for the parachute, and she turns, again, just as excited, are they really going to drop us down, and we're going to parachute all the way down? (laughs) So at that moment, I had to explain to her what a parachute was, and she had just as much fun. But if all of you on your evaluation forms would please put parachuting out of planes as an IRBC activity, that could be fun for another year, perhaps. (laughs) Um, All right, take your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, and I want to read the first 30 verses of Mark 7. So we skipped over just a couple verses from where we picked up last night, and we're just going to keep going through these first 30 verses of Mark chapter 7. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person." 
From there he arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile and a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon has gone. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer, but just before I do, one thing that I wanted to point out to you as I was reading along from chapter, from verse 15 to verse 17, a few of your Bible translations included a verse 16, something along the lines of, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, if you were paying attention in what Pastor Cody said this morning, this is one of those places where there's textual variance, and, and uh, it seems to be that perhaps some some of the most reliable manuscripts don't include that statement, though we see it in other places and certainly would be consistent with Jesus' teaching. And so that's why i just making a note. I'm not going to explain all of it, but uh, it goes into the process of copies, traditions, and how we ended up with those different manuscripts. If you have more questions, see Pastor Cody afterwards, because I think he's studied this a lot. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll dive into this. Father, we are thankful for the way that you have taught us about yourself in Scripture. And as we look at it tonight, uh, work in our hearts with your word, we pray. Um, you're, we need your spirit to teach us what we can't understand on our own. We, without your spirit's work, our eyes won't be open. And so that's what we ask for, Father. Uh, would your spirit use your word in our hearts tonight? We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have a question for you as we get started. How do we become clean? What does it take to be righteous? By what standard would you and I be considered holy or clean or right before God? And is it a standard that can be measured? Is it a standard that we can see? Is it a standard that others can see? Can we test one another's standards? Will everyone agree on whatever the standards are for cleanliness? Now, I'm not just talking about what it takes to become a Christian, how one becomes right. I'm, uh, that's included in what we're going to cover tonight. But beyond that, once you're a Christian, now, if you're going to be clean and right before God, by, by how does that happen? By what way is that accomplished? Have you ever seen that humans step, step away from spiritual cleanliness Human beings don't all have the same standard of measurement for cleanliness. So this isn't going to surprise some of you. Uh, my wife and I have different standards of cleanliness when it comes to our children. Okay? When I delivered this message to our church, it was in the spring of the year, and I can remember one day that week prior to the preaching of this passage, it was one of those warm spring days where you just, the kids have been cooped up and you got to get them outside because the day is nice, and they were playing outside for hours, and I was kind of in charge of getting the hurried supper ready to, and every, uh, the kids together at the table, and we're sitting around the table. And I'm sitting next to our four-year-old Rowan that night, and I don't remember if we were folding hands or if we were holding hands or what, but I do remember thinking during prayer, looking down at my son's hands, and I'm not going to say that they were black with grime and mud, but there was some grunginess going on, right? 
I hadn't yet taken care of hand washing before dinner, and I thought to myself, like, I wonder how big a deal this is going to be at the start of dinner. I live by the motto. There was a youth leader in my church growing up who impacted my life in great ways, and his saying was, God made dirt, and dirt don't hurt. That's my saying. We just go with it, right? My wife didn't quite see things the same way. She stopped dinner and sent the kids off to the bathroom to wash hands. We didn't agree on what was clean. Christians often struggle to understand and, and, and to establish rules, to establish priorities for how, how is it that we are right. If we're a Christian, now how are we supposed to live so that God is pleased with us, so that we can show our obedience to Him, so that we are walking in obedience to His commands. I want you to pay attention as we go through this passage, because Jesus is going to face a a question from the religious leaders of the day because they didn't agree with the standard Jesus was using for his disciples. And if we catch what Jesus was trying to teach, there's massive implications for you and I in terms of what it takes to be clean, what it takes to follow God with all of our hearts, and to even understand where rules and external standards come into play of how it is that we follow Jesus in the Christian life. So here's the one thing that I want you to catch if you're taking notes this morning and this evening, and it's this. Jesus came to cleanse us from the inside out. Jesus came to clean us from the inside out. As you see the way Jesus interacts with these religious leaders, and then as he gives his own teaching, and then he uses this really interesting example, Mark records it for us, of Jesus' interaction with the Syrophoenician woman, you will see Jesus' point that righteousness and cleanliness doesn't come from external outside standards, but it comes through faith in Jesus Christ where he himself cleans us from the inside out. Let's jump into this passage and see how we can understand how Jesus came to clean us from the inside out. Look at verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So here Jesus has, is continuing his ministry, and in what we cover this evening in these 30 verses, this is something of a hinge passage where to this point, Jesus has been ministering largely in Jewish territory to the Jews, not exclusively, but mostly. And this is kind of going to be the beginning now of a Gentile phase of ministry where, where Jesus is going to show his love and compassion to all peoples. And so as Jesus is beginning to minister, there's a group of religious leaders, some of the scribes and Pharisees come and they have a question for Jesus. And it's not a genuine question. This is not a fact-finding commission. It's a fault-finding commission. They come with an accusation because they don't like Jesus. There's been a lot of opposition that we've already skipped over in the first six chapters. And they have a bone to pick with Jesus. And they say, listen, we want to know why your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. So they're defiled. So what's taking place and why is it that they're making this accusation to Jesus? Well, Mark puts in this little parenthetical statement in the next several verses, from verse 3 all the way down through verse 4. And he's one of the reasons we know that Mark is writing to a Gentile audience is, is because of a statement like this. The Jews of the day knew exactly what this accusation was about, but the Gentiles had no clue. Eating with unwashed hands, what is that all about? So Mark has to fill in some of the details so that they would understand. 
here's what's taking place, and Jesus is going to point it out to them. Jesus is going to say in verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then Jesus makes his own accusation in verse 8, and he says, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus' disciples, by eating with unwashed hands, they weren't breaking any of God's laws. You can go to the Old Testament, and there were ceremonial laws whereby the priests had to do some ceremonial washings before they entered the tabernacle to offer sacrifices. But they were never intended to be washings for everyone always. What happened throughout the time, throughout history, as God's people desired, they wanted to be clean. Out of good motives, they desired to have a right relationship with God. They weren't trying to be evil. They thought, if it's important that we're clean, we don't want to be impure. We don't want to be defiled. Go through the Old Testament and see all of God's emphasis that you're, you're my holy people. You need to be set apart. You need to be right. The last thing they wanted was to be called unclean. And so they figured, listen, we want to be so careful that we aren't unclean that they began to add extra rules on top of rules to make sure that they weren't unclean. So there's something like 613 commands in the first five books of the Old Testament in the Torah. And if you were paying attention to what Pastor Cody said this morning, then beyond the Torah, you've got both the Talmud and the Mishnah, which end up being like commentaries on those laws that add extra rules that if, if the Torah says we do this, we sin, then let's add an extra rule to create a fence around it to make sure that we can't get close to it. And we'll put another fence around that to make sure we can't get anywhere close. And that's how they ended up with this kind of tradition, that there was a certain way they needed to hold their hands and let the water flow through. And there was a certain number of times they had to wash their hands before they could eat because they didn't want to be unclean. And they did all kinds of things like this. When they would go to the marketplace, they might come in contact with someone who was unclean, and so they needed to wash again. And they would do the same thing with the pots and the pans and the dining couches, and Mark fills all of this in. And so the religious leaders come to Jesus and say, you don't follow our rules. And Jesus says, hold on. You think you're following me. And your heart is far from me. They weren't actually understanding who God was. And they were in opposition to Jesus. And he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And so he says this then in verse 9. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother by the way. Uh, there's several parallels to what you said this morning in, in terms of what Pastor Cody covered in our doctrine and theology of inspiration when Jesus says, Moses said, because God inspired Moses to write, Jesus is saying, here's God's law, right? The, the religious leaders come and said, here's our tradition and you violated it. And Jesus says, whoa, back up. Let's go to what God says through Moses. Moses said, honor your father and mother. And Jesus has raised the stakes now because they brought to Jesus a law that, it, that there wasn't just ritual impurity at stake if they had eaten with unwashed hands. Here, death is the stakes. That when someone who violates honoring father and mother, death is the punishment. And the people had developed a sidestep around this. In terms of what would have been included in honoring their father and mother when parents aged, it would have been the children's responsibility to care for the parents. And that would have come at great financial cost to the children. However, they had found this loophole. 
There was a way that they could take their financial resources and they could declare it Corbin. And when they did that, that meant that they were taking those monies and they were dedicating them to the Lord's service. At that point, the priests would step in and even if the people wanted to care for their parents, the priests would say, no, that's God's. You're off the hook. You don't have to honor your father and mother. You don't have to provide for them. In fact, we wouldn't let you use your money for that if you wanted. And Jesus exposes that. And he says, you think my disciples are breaking the rules? They're just breaking your traditions. And you take your traditions and you break God's law. And he says, you do this in a lot of ways. Corbin was just one small illustration. So, if that's how we have a war, we've walked through the first 13 verses. The Pharisees are confronting Jesus over tradition. Before I go on to Jesus' teaching on defilement, let me stop right here. And let's give a little bit of teaching on how this comes into play in our lives today. This focus on outward external rules is known by a lot of words in our a lot of labels in Christianity today. Externalism, formalism, traditionalism, probably the most well-known one is legalism. I want to stop and talk about it because it's one of the most misunderstood labels in our churches today. And when we get the definition of legalism wrong and when we misunderstand what Jesus is saying... It, it leads to some pretty disastrous consequences in our lives because we need to be people who are trying to be clean. Cleanliness before God, holiness before God is very important. We tend to think that legalism is anyone who has more conservative standards than me. If you have higher standards than I do, we're quick to throw around that, ter- that, that well, you're a legalist. And that's not exactly the best definition for understanding what legalism is. One of my favorite definitions of an author says it this way. I think we have it for you on the screen. He says this, Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. Listen, we all have to have rules and standards. We can't make it through life without traditions. Your churches have traditions built into them, and they're not wrong for doing that. What we must be careful not to do is to take those traditions and say, this is now the measuring stick whereby we judge your love for God, or whereby you can earn God's favor and acceptance by jumping through all of our hoops. You see, if we don't catch and understand what Jesus is teaching in this passage, those of us that have grown up in more restrictive environments, we may feel like we've grown up in an environment where Uh, There's this unwritten code that in order to love God, in order to be accepted by God, you need to do X, Y, Z, or you need to not do X, Y, Z. And when, if, if we get the Jesus teaching wrong, we begin to throw that off. And very, very subtly, without knowing it, our hearts don't change, and we just simply replace X, Y, Z with A, B, C. And there's a different list of standards that now we feel, well, those aren't as conservative as the old ones, and our hearts may not have changed and grasped what Jesus was teaching. So I want you to pay attention as we go through this. Because actually, this emphasis on external rules isn't Jesus' main point. He's going to show us where cleanliness, where righteousness actually comes from. So he's now going to teach 
about what defiles a person. So let's look at Jesus' teaching on defilement in verse 14, and he says this. So he calls the people to him again, and he says to them, Hear me, all of you. Understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus says, listen, it's not the outside, it's the inside. When he's talking about what comes out, he's using heart language. That, that control center of the personhood, the, the, the center of our emotions, attitudes, actions, our hearts is what comes out of us. And he's going to need to explain it further to his disciples because in verse 17, when he enters the house, they come and they ask him about it. And Jesus says, okay, if you don't understand this, he needs to go and teach a little bit further in verse 18. He says this, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and it is expelled. Jesus is using very graphic language. The literal translation would be when it enters your mouth, it goes out into the latrine. He's saying the things that come into us don't affect the heart so it's not what comes into us from the outside that makes us unclean. He says uh, um, in verse 19, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and it is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. You and I don't catch the significance of that statement of Jesus declaring all foods clean. Think of all the times through the New Testament that the early church had conflicts and disagreements about what foods were clean and which ones were unclean. This comes up in 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14, Romans 15, Acts 10, 11, 15, Galatians 2, Colossians 2, 1 Timothy 4. The early church struggled to grasp this concept and here Mark realizes how significant it is. He says right there Jesus declared all foods clean and he goes on to say in verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defines him heart language for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery coveting wickedness deceit sensuality envy slander pride foolishness all these evil things come from within and they defile a person okay what makes people clean what makes people right before God Jesus says it's not the outward external things they're not what defile somebody it's what comes out of the heart now we need to catch this. Jesus says, food doesn't matter, the heart does. Here's why we have to be careful. What we want to hear there, we want to hear Jesus saying, externals, physical things, rules, those things don't matter. What matters is the heart. But that's precisely not what Jesus is saying. And if we jump there too quickly, we'll miss the point and we'll mess some of this up. Here's what Jesus is actually saying. He is saying that the external things, the physically bad things that we can see, they come from the heart. They flow out of the internal condition of our heart. This is the reason that there were so many purity laws in the Old Testament. God wanted his people to be clean and set apart. He didn't want them to be defiled. But he needed them to see and understand that they were broken. They needed a rescuer. They were in this impossible condition of being able to cleanse themselves. And all of the purity laws pointed forward to the day when someone would be pure enough, when someone would be clean enough to offer a once-for-all sacrifice that could make 
make them clean. And so here's what they need, here's what you and I need to catch as it relates to outward external standards, outward rules. We cannot place our confidence for our own rightness and righteousness in those external rules. We know we need to have clean hearts, so where do they come from? And how do we receive this? So there is some application to be made as it relates to rules, as it relates to some of the standards, some of the things I was talking about, about legalism, but the emphasis of the passage is on where righteousness come from and where is our confidence to be clean from God. So look at this really quick. Here's the way William Lane puts it. He, he says it this way. Jesus doesn't do away with the need for purity. He sharpens it. This is really helpful for us to catch. Think of all the times through the New Testament that we are told to work and put effort into holiness. Yes, the Holy Spirit is the one that fuels that. Yes, the gospel is what provides that. But brothers and sisters, you can't read the New Testament without an understanding that purity is important to Jesus. So where does it come from? It doesn't come from outward rules and standards. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. And he said to them, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus lists many, many things, both thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors, actions. And he said, when you see these out things on the outside, it's because they're coming from the inside in the heart. Now, you and I don't believe that. When evil thoughts pop into our mind about someone that we see, we don't say, oh, I'm a horrible, rotten sinner with evil on the inside. We say, well, if that person wasn't such a jerk, I wouldn't think that about them. So this illustration is not original with me. I saw Paul Tripp do it, but here's what I want you to, everybody needs to look up here. Everybody, do we have all eyes up here? Okay, watch real close. Okay, here we go. It's clean water for any of the maintenance staff that wants to know. Okay, here's my question for you. Why did water come out of the bottle? Because I shook the bottle, right? Let me ask the question a different way. Why did water come out of the bottle? Because water was in the bottle. And water would not have come out of the bottle if it wasn't in it. And when the circumstances of life press us and shake us, the attitudes and the actions that flow out, they only flow out because of what's in our hearts. And so when we see envy and slander and sexual immorality and all of these attitudes and actions and behaviors they're coming out of us not because we didn't have the right rules and standards on the outside, though some of those things might be necessary in the battle of sin. They're coming out because there's something in the heart, sin, that must be dealt with. And Jesus needed his disciples to catch this because there was a whole group of religious leaders that had lived their whole life thinking that if they followed all 613 laws and put enough standards around that then they would be clean and right before God. And Jesus looks at them and says, you are whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside and you're dead on the inside. 
And then Jesus is going to help them see. Mark is going to help us see by putting another story in what Jesus does. And he talks about the Syrophoenician woman. And he goes to verse 24. And at first, this really catches us as odd. But he's going into a new region. And as he's going to be speaking in Gentile territory, he didn't want to be found or seen. But he couldn't hide the fact he was there. And word spread. And the Syrophoenician woman comes. And she's a Gentile by birth. And so think of what Mark is showing us here. The religious leaders come and accuse Jesus, you're not clean, your disciples aren't clean. That's what they have to say. And then here comes a woman who if you tried to put together her resume of cleanness, she has a big fat zero of clean things about her. She's a woman, she's a Gentile, she has a daughter who has an unclean spirit. Everything about this woman is unclean. The, the religious leaders certainly would have condemned her. And she comes to Jesus and she pleads with him. She's, she's exhausted resources. She says, my daughter has an unclean spirit. Can you, can you do something? Jesus, help. She's at the end of her rope. And Jesus turns to her. And look what Jesus says as she's begging him to cast the demon out of her daughter in verse 26. Look at verse 27. He says to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, that sounds harsh. Especially if we think that Jesus' main mission was to come and alleviate all suffering in the world, but that wasn't his mission. He came to save his people, the Jewish people. And it was going to spread to all peoples through the Gentiles, but first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so we hear this and we think that perhaps Jesus is being very derogatory or mean, but I don't think that's the tone as much as here. Jesus is going to teach. He's testing her faith. And she shows herself to be a model example of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And so she says this. She, she looks at Jesus and says, yes, she says in verse 28. Yes, Lord. She calls him Lord in the gospel of Mark, except for the words of Jesus and scriptures about him. This is the only human who utters the, lip, uh, who utters the word Lord about Jesus in Mark's account. She says, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he says to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Here's, here's what she says. Yes, but, but it's okay. I don't have to be one of the children. I recognize I'm a dog. I'll, I have enough faith in you. You can help. Just, I need a crumb. That's all I need. The religious leaders would have looked at her and said, unclean. And yet her faith in who Jesus was demonstrates her acceptability before God. It wasn't the outward conformity to rules that made her acceptable to God. It was her faith in the person of Jesus Christ. She becomes an illustration of the point that Jesus is trying to make. That Jesus came to cleanse us from the inside out. Jesus didn't come to give us a list of rules and standards that from the outside in we could transform our lives. That with enough work and effort we could conform ourselves. Jesus came to say, you have sinful hearts that need to be dealt with, and only he could accomplish that on the cross. We've got to understand this as Christians, that that's where righteousness comes from, by faith in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. So let's apply this truth to our areas in a few key areas. Number one, let's think about our reputations, right? Because as Christians in the church, we often think 
One of the things that fuels us to, to conform to those outward standards is I want others to think well of me. I want them to think I've all got it all together and so there's certain things I do and certain things I don't do and maybe they'll look at me and say that I'm acceptable before God. But if we understand the gospel, that you and I are not acceptable before God apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, this will transform the way we live in front of others and the way... the the transparency with which we live in the church. Milton Vincent, in his fantastic little book, A Gospel Primer for Christians, says this, The cross exposes me before the eyes of other people, informing them of the depth of my depravity. If I wanted others to think highly of me, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect Son of God was required that I might be saved. But when I stand at the foot of the cross and am seen by others under the light of that cross, I am left uncomfortably exposed before their eyes. Indeed, the most humiliating gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Golgotha's hill. And in my self-righteous reputation, left in ruins is, excuse me, and my selfish right, my self-righteous reputation is left in ruins in the wake of its revelations. With the worst facts about me thus exposed to the view of others, I find myself feeling that I truly have nothing left to hide. We've got to understand where righteousness comes from or we'll try to put it on on the outside and our relationships will be inauthentic in the church and our churches will struggle because the one anothering isn't happening as it ought. Let's talk about parenting for a second. I'm thankful that the teens aren't in here because I need to say a couple of hard things about the way we as Christians sometimes are tempted to parent. Number one, what is it that we as parents are trying to protect our kids from? I still remember, I was a pastor in Colorado, and I was around a pastor's book club. I had one maybe 18-month-old kid, and we were at the very beginning of parenting. And let's face it, this world is scary, and it's getting scarier all the time when we see the agenda of an anti-Christian world and the things that are being thrown at us. And we can feel like we need to insulate ourselves, insulate our kids and protect them from the evil out there. Okay, so I'm a new parent trying to learn what it means to parent, and I, uh, Jenna, your dad is a part of this book club, and Pastor Mike turned to all of us, and he said this. He said, um, the most dangerous thing that your children are ever going to face is not the evil that exists out there in the world. It's the evil inside of their own hearts. And that statement hit me like a ton of bricks. We've got to remember that, parents. Our children are sinners, and they need the gospel. And yes, we have to have rules and standards. We can't make it through parenting without them, but we dare not place our confidence in those rules and standards to keep them safe from evil because the greatest evil lives inside their hearts and they need a savior to save them. Number two, remember the gospel when it comes to parenting our, our children. Do not parent in such a way that you expect your kids to be perfect. If your kids could be perfect, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. I regularly have to catch myself with this with my, with my kids when I'm coming on too strong and I'm laying on too much law and I'm saying, why don't you get this? You need to act better. Well, I know why they can't get it. Because I'm a sinner who needs the grace of the gospel. Every now and then, a few times a year with, with each kid, I have to get down with them on their level and put them on my knee. And maybe your kids are beyond that stage, but... But do not buy into the temptation that says you as a parent have to be perfect and your kids cannot ever see your flaws. No, you're a sinner who needs the gospel. And sometimes you need to get down with that child and say, I understand why you sin because dad's a sinner too. 
I understand why you need grace. I understand why you need forgiveness. I understand why you need a Savior, because that's what I need. We've got a parent in such a way that gives room to the gospel. Number three, just think about our relationships in the church. What happens to you in your relationships with others in the church when you are sinned against? Is there room for the gospel in your relationships with others in the church? When people sin against you, is there room for grace and forgiveness? Watch what happens in the heart of a legalist when, you, when someone violates their rules and standards. There is no room for forgiveness. There is no room for reconciliation. And there are so many fractured relationships in our churches today because people haven't been willing to come back to the gospel and to realize the, the need for forgiveness. That we're, we're, We don't expect perfection. We understand what it's like to sin against one another. And we must be quick to come and to ask for that forgiveness because we're, we're more like this Syrophoenician woman than we are the religious leaders of the day. We're not people who have it all together. We're, we're like this woman who says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the dogs. I, I, I just need the crumbs of grace, and so I can extend that same grace to you. How, how is it that you think about being clean and right before God? Because it's very, very important in our lives, in the lives of our children. We need purity and holiness and righteousness is, import, is important before God, but it only comes by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's where we must place our faith and confidence in rightness before God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you help us as your children to be people who long for pure and holy lives in front of you? But would we rest our confidence in the fact that only faith in the person of Jesus Christ can make us clean? Father, if there's some here tonight who are resting in the wrong places, would your spirit give some course corrections to our lives so that we would rest in Christ's righteousness and not our own? We ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.